0: company will often talk about the outcome for their corporation. Designers, you need to pull them again, like a magnet, you got to pull them in the opposite direction. You want the outcome for that end user. So when you convey your point of view, sometimes that allows you to have much more impact. You've got to make the links between the business goals and the design program or the design goals. And once your client understands, oh, the designer is actually thinking about how I can become more successful, oh my gosh, the the door is open. You can suddenly, you're given so much freedom because now you're talking their language. Then finally, use all the market evidence to prove how impactful design can be. It exists. There is so much evidence of good design making an impact to businesses. And when you combine all of these points together, it becomes so obvious that, that design is providing impact and and it's not as hard as you think to to get your innovation out there.
1: Welcome to Design Drives, your audio experience about what, how, and why design drives things forward. A podcast hosted by Sebastian Gear, together with forward-thinking design practitioners from around the world. In this episode, I have the amazing opportunity to talk to Dan Harden, one of the world's most known and forward-thinking industrial designers and thought leaders in the design space, who founded and runs Webso, an award-winning design consultancy in California since over 20 years. We touch on his journey and the early days growing as a designer at Frog, working with Apple and Hartmut Esslinger in the early days, and how he saw design changing through the link of physical and digital design into more complex and holistic experiences that opened up a whole new world for design, but also his best practices when it comes to communicating the value of design to other stakeholders and driving innovation as a designer. We learn from many of his projects and powerful stories of driving impact and outcomes of design, ranging from rescuing companies, reinventing industries, or frog leaping brands, and even saving lives. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. I'm here with Dan Harden. Hi, Dan. How are you doing? Great. Doing great. I'm pretty excited to talk to you about the impact of design and all your experiences in the industry. I think it would be great for the, if you could give the audience a bit of context about you, a little bit about your journey and your drive being a designer.
0: Okay. Well, this is fun talking to you. Let's see. I, I could, you know, as far as my own like, personal history, I can sort of think back even to when I was a kid, I kind of felt this strong urge to create. And whether that was kind of an artistic urge or, you know, tinkering with things like lawnmower engines and taking the proverbial toasters apart, I was always very curious. And I still am. And I think that's why I really gravitated toward being a a consultant. Mm -hmm. Because yeah, almost everything excites me about design. And, you know, it started really back then when I was when I was a kid and a teenager especially. I had a lot of good kind of creative support growing up. My parents really understood that that I had some talent and they supported it. They let me just grow and encouraged me in every way. So, you know, I went to design school, of course, and I had some really good internships that, that changed my life. I had several epiphanies throughout school at these internships. I worked at Richardson Smith in Ohio, a really well-known firm at the time. And then I worked with George Nelson, George Nelson of you know, of, of the Herman Miller fame. And he's, you know, he did so much great work. He was, he was the man in design. He was the true master. I learned Mm -hmm. a lot from him. I worked very closely with him and I worked in a corporation at HP. Then I went to Germany. I worked for a year in Germany for a small consulting firm down in Esslingen. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, ultimately I, I missed I miss the United States or something about the sense of freedom. And, and I know that's a little bit of a cliche, but I definitely felt like, you know, there was just a lot of opportunity yet to be had, but I think I had to leave the United States to see it for what it was. And mm-hmm. part of that that, that freedom and that, that drive for creating was just very strong. So I went back to New York City and I worked at Henry Dreyfus Associates, a great place to cut my teeth on what design was all about, including not just designing, but also creating programs and figuring out the business of design. It was really a great place for that. But after a few years, I realized how much of a designer's designer that I was, and I really needed to get deeper into design philosophy and and what real innovation meant. And at that time, this was in 1989, there was really one firm that I related most to as far as their mission goes, and that was Frog Design. So I came out to California. I met the frog design guys for the second time. When I was in Germany, I met them the first time, and it was super exciting because they were this very interesting, wacky little firm in the Black Forest that told me, well, they just met this guy named Steve Jobs, and they think they're going to get this job for this company called Apple. So by the time I joined, so I came out to California six years after that first discussion I had with them. and they made me an offer right away. They said, come to California. We need you here in a week. So drove across the country from New York City to Frog and started what was an incredible journey. I mean, I ended up being there for 10 years. But you know, my first week at Frog, Hartmut, the founder and uh, leader of the company, said, well, you're going to work on uh, computers for Next, and you're going to be working directly with Steve Jobs. You can be working with Andy Bechtelsheim, founder of Sun Microsystems, and Pier Luigi Zappacosta, founder of Logitech, and these are your accounts. So I was thrown into this, this incredible world of design, high design, I guess you would call it back then, because there was really no firm quite like Frog at the time. You know, they, were, they were really like, like the rock and roll house at the time. They were, they were the firm that was doing all the really interesting work. We had a few rivals of course like like ID2 and Matrix and they became IDO. But I really related to this company Frog. Okay. You know I really grew as a designer throughout the 10 years and then in 1999 I after being a, at Frog for that decade, a very exciting decade to be at Frog by the way. Those were kind of the golden years of that company. I really felt that I needed to start my own firm. So that was 99. And, you know, I first, I remember the trepidation I felt at first, because, you know, after being spoiled by amazing clients at Frog, I was hoping that I would be able to get some really good work. And surprisingly, within the first month, you know, I had, oh, I don't know, six clients. Some of them were Frog clients or people that I've worked with in the past. And it just one thing kind of came together after the other. And I just remember that feeling of this newfound liberation, you know, starting a firm and with all the anxiety wrapped around it, there's, Mm -hmm. I mean, we could do a podcast just on what it takes to start a design firm. Uh, But let's just say starting Whipsaw had all of those, those wonderful surprises and challenges and worrisome moments, but it has been an absolute incredible rush to say the least, the sheer quantity of work, the quality of work, the people that you meet being a consultant, et cetera. It was just an extraordinary, it's been an extraordinary adventure and it continues to be. And, you know, the present is more exciting than the past. And I think the future is even more exciting than the present.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, super interesting to hear that journey. Super fascinating when you were starting Whipso and now maybe looking a little bit closer to all your years at, at Whipso, What was your learnings, growing, leading the design studio, doing all these times? Uh, looking back,
0: what did I learn? Oh my gosh, so much. You know, some of the bigger ones are how do you how do you create almost in a relentless fashion innovation day after day, month after month, year after year. How do you do that? How do you keep that? How do you keep going so that you always remain relevant? So you're always creating good, meaningful innovation for different clients around the world. That process and the depth of the process and the learnings around that, I think, are profound. Another key learning is how you always motivate your design team, realizing that sometimes what really makes people tick is is giving them the exposure and the empowerment to actually bring forth all of their creative genius by always providing inspirational moments, motivational factors, understanding that designers are often artistic and emotional and sometimes require lots of support and even coddling in a way. Creativity is very fragile designers can be fragile too. I mean, I'm one of them. I'm also very sensitive and I think really understanding how to how to keep the team very positive and always moving forward. I've learned a lot about that. I've also learned a lot about how you how you work with many different kinds of clients whether they're stressing a, a marketing objective or an engineering objective and really understanding their their perspectives so that you as a designer can be most effective by working with their criteria, not only yours, and as a designer, you often know your own craft like you you know one can feel very confident around all the things that we worry about you know making products more intuitive or more beautiful more functional and higher performance but those elements sometimes are not what make a program successful it's often the case where you have to as a designer you have to really be have to take your yourself out of your own cranial box to understand contextual information, like, you know, what are this, what do the CEOs want to achieve with their business? What do the market how do the marketing people want to reach new customers? What are the issues that engineers have that, whether it's regarding cost or structure or thermal or some level of performance and then how can you as a designer work with all those various criteria to ultimately make something successful and I think that's also been a huge learning.
1: You know, how do you approach different, let's say, clients or other stakeholders when it comes to what design can deliver? I think, you know, looking backwards, since you have got all that experience, obviously, during all the years, especially in Silicon Valley from 1989 to now, I think you saw design changing quite a bit. I think there's much more responsibility for design and people understand what what it means much better these days. What is your approach and when it comes to communicating this to other stakeholders? The key answer to that is communication.
0: It's Designers, I think, need to be more persuasive. They need to listen more. As a matter of fact, I called the company Whipsaw because it's a metaphor for how we like to work with our clients. Whipsaw is a long two-man saw you've seen them use for cutting Mm -hmm. down giant trees. There's a handle on both sides. You can't operate that by yourself. You must reciprocate. When your client has a problem you listen you pull back and they say yes but and then they pull back so that reciprocity is very key one is I think stakeholders need to first be educated what design is about not all of them some clients are are very astute sometimes you're working directly as a consultant you're working directly with a design group already within a corporation mm-hmm. so you don't really need to educate them but it's more often the case especially with us with a startup or a maybe a somewhat less sophisticated client or that hasn't, maybe a client that just hasn't been through this process before, you just need to educate them about the values of design, you know, what you're trying to do. As long as people understand that your objective and your intent, your intrinsic intent is to provide some form of goodness to their customer, the end user. And then you describe how you're going to do that. Then all of a sudden, doors will start to open for you as a designer. Once. Your client realizes that you're really there to provide more meaning, more enablement, more support, maybe sometimes more delight to that end user, their customer. Then they realize, wow, this thing called design, industrial design specifically, is has such a value that we must allow it to completely manifest. We need to sort of get out of the way of the designers and let them do what they do best because what they're offering is this true benefit. And they're trying to innovate for that end user. We try to get our customers to really come back to the source of what their income and their business stems from. And that is the end user, their customer. Sometimes if you have an enterprise client, the customer is not actually the end user. But to a designer, we are the biggest advocate for the end user, that individual that ultimately receives this this gift of design. What I mean by that is design Design carries values in it. Everything that you experience in your life, there are values in there. Like, like there's a coffee cup that I'm holding in my hand right now. Mm-hmm. And clearly the value of this is it's containing the coffee and the, the empty space within it is most critical. Next step up is there appears to be some advertising on this cup, and, which doesn't really connect with me. Clearly the value as well is the fact that this is a very low cost solution. This is a carry out cup. So these values are in there, but people typically, the end user typically doesn't rationalize that. They don't go through that process. They just accept it or not. They are sometimes enamored with it. If it's, a, if it's a product of far greater design impact, let's say an automobile that you fell in love with, well, there are all kinds of messages of value that the designer imparted and imbued in that product solution that they foretold usually years in advance. Designers have to impart these values in and then hope that by the time the product hits the market, that it will be felt in a manner that you had projected it to be. And that's where designers are are future
1: tellers and projectionists. Mm -hmm. Yeah, super interesting. Totally agree. Looking a little bit back, I mean, you already told about your experiences working at Frog and then one of your, your first clients, Apple and Next and so on. I think these are Really great experiences and examples, maybe looking closer at your, also your time at at Whipsaw. What was some of your projects or some of your favorite projects even where you really had the chance and the the feeling that you could drive impact from a design side when it comes to the product experience or the project at large?
0: I've designed literally over a thousand products and each one of them I kind of consider to be like my babies. Right. Now, now, some of them you're yeah. very proud of because they went off and they got a really good education and they make a lot of money. So your your baby's turning into kids. Others, others don't make it, you know, some. But but you try on average, you know, I'm, I and the reason I I've tried to pr- be prolific in my profession is because I feel like as a designer, you can impact the world most if your innovations get out there in the world and they actually offer this positive change for users. And the more the better, because it's that multiplicity where you're actually having greater impact. And sometimes as a designer, this can be felt in in a or as an end user, sometimes this the little gift, like I said before, that a designer can give to you, sometimes it's a very minor thing, you know, like like a little tile tracker. You know, just it's it's addressing one little problem that you have, you know, like a lost item to be able to track it right, and to have a connection with this tiny little product that this just does one thing really well. Sometimes, if you have multiplicities of these kinds of experiences, now you can start to say as a designer that you are collectively making a difference. In other projects, sometimes there you, have, you can have a more profound impact. So, for example, we've been working a fair amount with companies like Samsung and Google, and In these cases, what we're trying to do is move them along to a a better offering, if you will. In the case of Samsung, looking at at a lot of kind of future concepts and then helping them turn those into reality. These are products that, that we all know Samsung produces, you know, whether it's televisions, computing type devices, IoT devices in the home or appliances. We try to elevate those experiences wherever we can. And a lot of times it's on a strategic level. And in the case of Google, we started working with them before they were producing any hardware products. So we actually conceived of and developed one of their very first, very successful products, the Chromecast. And, mm-hmm. you know, that that ended up being one of their most successful pieces of hardware in the company's history, if not the most successful. I think they've shipped more than 50 million of those things. There you're making an impact again by trying to reveal some kind of a hidden need. Like in the case of Chromecast, it was about helping them discover what is it about watching television that that is not quite satisfactory. And one of the answers came up that you weren't really able to stream, you weren't really able to view... YouTube easily or Hulu, and it was kind of clunky to get to your your different apps. So the thought was, let's bring that that streaming service up front, right on the display, and then make the hardware disappear by putting it behind the television, which is kind of like the anti-design answer. But at the end of the day, it was really all about the content of the television and the experience of streaming that we were trying to enhance and then designing those screens that enable that to to be as fun and quite workable as it ended up being. You know, there's so many, we work with startups to the giant Fortune 100 companies. We've, well, there's about 60 active projects in the office at any given time. And we'll do everything from like products for babies to giant enterprise systems to medical and interesting scientific goods, all the way to uh, products for the elderly. And we need to expand that into now more hygienic products that address things like virus control. One of my favorites, I guess you could, you could say would be, oh, um, I remember working on a baby bottle where we completely reinvented how a baby bottle is, is manufactured. We created a complete kind of breast-like form. You can see that on our website. And it was the first baby bottle that you, actually the first innovation in baby bottles in a hundred years since they were invented. Back in 1906, I think it was the first patent where they had a glass bottle with a, a latex nipple on the top that was held down by a ring. And every baby bottle had been following us since that time. So we turned the problem upside down. We literally filled it from the bottom so that we could have a full dome on the top. It was very soft. We invented a new vent. That breathed easier to prevent colic, mm-hmm. uh, the condition where a baby would actually inhale some of these small bubbles and it ended up reinventing the whole industry it was it became very successful, and every other company tried to copy it. you know let's see what other industries we uh, we've done some really interesting mm-hmm. medical products that have had Gosh, to say an impact would be an understatement because these products sometimes are saving lives. We helped a company called Silk Road Medical reinvent how carotid artery surgery is done. Carotid artery surgery is necessary if you want to prevent an embolism from breaking loose, or let's just say a, a piece of plaque that would break loose in the carotid artery that can then go into the Bloodstream and cause a stroke. Surprisingly, this team of cardiologists and vascular surgeons asked us to help conceptualize a new way to solve the problem. Now, this is a surgical process. We are not MDs. We don't have MDs on staff, but it was a, when we looked at it, it's a three dimensional visual problem. We had action, we had fluid dynamics, we had people and processes. We had to create a design that would be readily accepted by, by surgeons that, that typically follow a strict process because they have proven it works and it's safe. So we had to challenge those assumptions. And after about three years, we ended up reinventing this device that is now in use and saving lives daily. This company just went public because they were so successful already. That's what I call impact when you are not only just making a bunch more money for your client, but you're actually, I mean, that, that's, I guess, the ultimate gift of a benefit to an end user is their life. We're also working on projects for cerebell. This is a, the first portable electroencephalogram. And EEGs are typically big devices that were, and expensive devices, whereby an, only a neurologist can operate them. But oftentimes, someone is coming into the ER and they have had, they're unconscious, but they might have had a drug overdose or a stroke, and they're having a convulsion that can be fatal if not checked. But because they aren't presenting symptoms, like a seizure that you would typically imagine someone shaking, there's no way to really know So the morbidity rate in these ER rooms sometimes is mysterious, and one of the causes of of death sometimes is the fact that a seizure is occurring, but it wasn't detected. So we developed this product where it's a headband, you put it around a patient's head that you might suspect of having this particular problem because they're presenting other symptoms, and within six minutes, it takes a reading, and if there is a seizure occurring, instead of having to Consult with a neurologist. This device actually makes a sound that sounds a little bit like a crying toddler. That anyone, any nurse, any intern can understand. Hey, this this patient has a problem. Then you can go and offer treatment and do a do more thorough investigation. So again, impact. It's also fun to impact markets. I remember this company called Dropcam approaching us, and they they just had the hunch. They had a notion that. Home Security was going to be a growing field, and it would be really great if there was a little video audio monitor that you could place in your home and We thought you got to be kidding that something like that it has to exist and we went to, we did our research we found out that yeah, Sony and Sharper were offering these very expensive surveillance cameras, but those were used more in commercial environments, you know like corporate for corporate security, so we ended up creating this this cute little device that kind of looked like a little face and a neck and a shoulder line and figured out a way to adjust it so that you could put it on your wall, put it on your table and adjust it and aim it at anything of interest in your home, whether that is a pet or a child that you're looking after, or maybe just your favorite expensive piece of artwork that you want to always keep an eye on. And it was just a clever little combination of like XYZ adjustment. The camera rotating in this aluminum frame allowed you to then go to your smartphone and the image would be perfectly righted. It was vertical. All other cameras just failed to solve that problem. Just just having the image always as if it was you looking in, in an environment. It sold very well to the point that Google Nest ended up buying Dropcam for a huge sum of money. And it went out in the market. There were several different renditions of it. It Became a Nest product, and it gave birth to a whole industry. There have been other over twenty copies of Dropcam in the market from many different companies. Even the big ones like AT and T and Motorola pretty much has have taken the Dropcam design solution and tweaked the design a little bit, but basically it is you know it's still the Dropcam. So that's another kind of measure of impact when you can actually have, a, have an industry impact. Oh, I'm excited by so many different things, all these different projects. Um, You know, we just redesigned the Brita Stream water pitchers, and it's the first time that the Brita, that's actually a a company from Germany that was founded in 1965. But typically, these pitchers have an, an upper internal chamber that is opaque. You pour the water in it, it runs to the filter, which is hanging down in the water. And you have to wait, and you have to wait a little bit more. Okay, you're thirsty, so you start to pour it. And sometimes that water comes out of the top chamber before it goes through the filter. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So we developed the Brita stream line, they call it, and that brought the filter up to the point of the pouring spout. So it allowed by doing that, it allowed the it filters as you pour, which is a completely different approach for Brita. The big advantage in our view, was that you could see the water. After all, it was about the water. It wasn't about the pitcher. It was all about the water. Yep. They asked us, is the pitcher the hero? Is the filter the hero? And we we said, well, no, actually the water is the hero. We, need to, <laughs> we really need to to get everything else out of the way. Sometimes that's what you have to do as a designer. You have to it's hard sometimes because as a designer, you want to bring your design forward, but sometimes you have to push it backward. You have to get it in the background. Yeah, you have to yeah. solve a problem, but then let it recede. We all want it to be out there in the front, but you know, I find that if you first solve some of the problems, whether they're functional or human factors or business-related problems or bigger strategic problems, then you can... Then you can have your fun with what it looks like and the aesthetics, but always measure it so that it is in the right dose. So that does not, so that your design, the traditional definition of design, the appearance does not overtake all of this other goodness that you've built into your solution. And that was one of those cases where it did that. It was just like, yep, I'm thirsty. There's some water. I want to pour it out and drink it.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I think this was super powerful. Thanks for sharing all these different aspects of design impact and the different stories. I think certainly super inspiring. I think you'd, you'd already touched on a couple of examples, I think, where digitalization was a big part of that as well. You know, connected product experiences. And But there's something different about these products because they're connected. And I would love to talk a little bit with you about IoT and how you think Digitalization and connected products/slash intelligent products have changed industry design, in your opinion?
0: Yeah, I love the topic. I mean, no surprise—we're in the Silicon Valley, and I was drawn to the Silicon Valley all those years ago because of it. I mean, in the early days, you know, I was I was attracted to just technology in general because I I felt that technology needed identity, and unlike machines like if you think about like you know a food mixer or even an automobile it's it's often a derivative of its function so the machine it, it might have a a motor and a pivot and an armature that's doing this that and the other and your design really just needs to maybe reveal that essence of whatever makes that work technology is a little bit different is a lot of times you have so much freedom as a designer To say whatever you want, because sometimes the technology is nothing more than a circuit board and a battery. However, what it does, what it's actually delivering, is something quite meaningful to the end user. So, but it's it's enigmatic sometimes. So that gives you this opportunity to give personality to technology. Now, as what I'm seeing in technology now is yet another quantum leap where. Technology is starting to be thoughtful. It's actually doing a little bit of what would appear to be thinking. Now, it's just software and it's, it's mostly programming, but the software is now making assumptions about things. It's actually using a lot of data and rapid processing, real-time processing, to make decisions that appear to look like intelligence. It's not really intelligent yet. Intelligence to me is is much more emotional and it's more, well, we, you know when something is intelligent. And I haven't used any AI yet where I could say, yeah, that actually feels like I'm actually really talking to somebody. But these, So where AI is going, however, is it's only a matter of time where it starts to feel very intelligent and very alive. And this is such a great opportunity for us designers because now we go way beyond the design of this material thing, when which we are often encumbered by. If you think about how many times I've been told by engineers, oh, no, we can't make that out of metal. No, we can't die cast that. We have to injection mold this. It's a lot about matter. We're moving matter around. It's a lot about atoms and the limitations thereof. With AI, all right, now we're talking about bits, and you have so much freedom. So now, designers have this opportunity to design personalities. I mean, how crazy is that? It, it it makes you feel almost godlike. It's weird, but you know, when you're designing a personality, that is that is a whole different way of thinking. And I found that, especially more recently, we've been designing a lot of robots, and I. Find this this quality of giving something a a state of existence, a personality, a almost a sense of life that you have to think in a different way. As soon as something moves, for example, a robot that moves, it's probably in our it's in our genes. When something is moving, we almost instantly associate it with with life especially if it's like an artifact an object that is close to the size of like an animal or a pet or a or another human so there's this instant association that it should act properly as a life form so when it starts to move in a quirky manner well you kind of feel quirky about it you're like ooh, i don't really want to be around that so again it's a chance to design that that feeling of of intelligence, I guess, or emotionality through this artifact. And now as a designer, you it, it is because it isn't passive, you now need to be much more thoughtful in how you how you are very subtly providing nuance of motion, nuance of expression, nuance of pure existence of this thing. And I, I really love that because to me at the heart of really good design is psychology. So Designers really need to understand so much more about psychology as we move into a more intelligent future where we are designing these devices. And designers typically are, I've found in my career, often, not always, but often pretty introverted. And the sensitivity is residing within them to, and they feel this sense of psych, a psychological connection with what they're trying to design. Now is the opportunity to really bring that forward and to understand it and to capitalize on that. You know, then there's other fields like you mentioned IoT, but IoT is now blending with mobility. So we're in the process of reinventing mobility. I mean, who would have thunk it? Like just, you know, I remember 20 years ago, everybody thought, oh, you know, the automobile industry, it's just going along this this pace where it's just adding more technology. But why? We did not think about ride sharing. We did not think about autonomous driving. And here we are. It's extraordinary, but it's yet another opportunity for designers to take this special skill set that they have of of being the the agent between the technology and the user. The the real and the that agent must be an advocate for the end user, but you also have to talk the talk of the technologists, so that you can one understand what their objectives are, and two, how to how to use that, that technology as a designer. How how can you use it and apply it to the solution that makes the most sense to the end user? Because at the end of the day, it's 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 most important to to provide again some form of. Quality quality of life, quality of experience, you know just the notion of quality, I think is actually something that we designers are really good at, but it seems like the world is sometimes forgotten because business has gotten so big and design has become so commoditized, but as long as we're getting back to this notion of quality, I think we're we're moving the bar forward
1: yeah, I love your your points you brought up, I think especially what you talked about robotics, I uh, recently talked to Quinley. Quite a bit on how robotics are basically now in in everything, and uh, as a designer, I, lo- I love what you said about design the motion of something. And if if something has a certain size, as a user, you start to expect certain things. Or if you if it's sort of moving in in an environment, I think this is a super interesting topic. I'm I'm, I'm looking here at the project you guys worked on, beer robotics. I think what's what's interesting also about that is like how do you prototype that, right? And how do you prototype these kind of motions and What do they actually then mean for the user? There's uh, some interesting work around making like the appearance of the robot and sometimes you don't even see it is a robot, right? Because, you know, maybe there's some robotics in, in the furniture, for example. But looking at more robots that are more appealing like robots, I think you can, it depends on how you make the appearance. You could either, for example, and that's, for example, if you look at how Chinese AI systems are designed probably often, and you know, how do you use the characters where so people forgive the device, right? If, for example, if the, the device can't do anything, like how do you do that in a way that, you know, people are not frustrated with the product or with the service i think this is this is it is interesting i was wondering a little bit how do you approach that kind of process i think all of these things you you've also mentioned about like and how did that how does a robot appear to you how does it feel like and how how do you prototype that kind of motion maybe with that example of the beer robotics or with some other kind of of project
0: yeah yeah i think there's a a general assumption that people make that the products around them that are produced and sold by all these companies like Apple and Google and Samsung and all of these, that they should just perform flawlessly. And when it comes to robots, you expect the same thing, but they often act kind of stupid. They're slow, they're awkward, but part of being human is, is to not be perfect. We all have issues and flaws and vulnerabilities and I think designers need to consider that when they're designing a robot. Like, for example, if a robot can't do something right, and it's okay for the robot to, like, be a little self-deprecating. It's okay. Like, people are funny, and robots can be funny, too. You know, and it makes it so instantly acceptable. (laughs) There's nothing worse than a person that says, oh, I can do this, and I can do that but they really can't. But the person that walks in says, you know what? I suck at this or that, but you know, I'm really good at this other thing. So in bear robotics, we actually took that attitude. Like, well, it doesn't have arms, right? So the bear robotics, we had to make it simple and cost effective because he really wanted it to be successful in the market. it just simply couldn't be a $10,000 robot that, that restaurants would say, are you kidding me? That's, you know, that's as Mm -hmm. much as we, we pay a waiter in the, in the next four months. So, we simplified it to a point where it, it was just a very good delivery robot. It can take an order. It can let the kitchen know that the order has taken place. It can it can actually present itself in front of the, the cook or the kitchen, where then the order is placed on it, and it knows exactly where to go. And... When it arrives at the table, because it doesn't have arms, it'll it can actually talk to you and say, Hey, I'm sorry, but you know, would you mind taking your pizza or your dish or your, your glasses? You know, we discovered a lot of that by just interviewing a lot of different people about what their expectations are. And we realized that this robot didn't really need to bust the table, but ironically, if the robot says something like, Hey, can you please help me clear the table? People love to put their dishes in this robot and have the robot just wheel itself away with your dishes. So it turns out that people are actually busing their own tables happily. And that was like a that was kind of a surprise that people were willing to put their dishes in there. They liked it more than a like some stranger, the busboy coming up and actually taking their plates off the table. Part of it was because it's a novelty. You know, the robot is new and we don't know how people are going to feel 10 years from now when there are a lot of robots, likely, in restaurants. We don't really know. But it it was an an interesting observation that we had that that led to that kind of behavior. So we were actually designing the behavior, not just the device itself, not just the robot. Designing the behavior of, of the patrons. You know, regarding robots... We will likely see more of them in many different parts of our life. you know we're doing very simple low cost one arm home service robots. there's a study that we did for Stanford Research Institute that resulted in something called busy robots and Martian robots and in this case we were our objective was to design a like less than two thousand dollar retail home service robot that would do simple things like you know, pick up laundry on the floor, pick up the kids' toys, water the plants, make sure the dog is fed, things like that. Simple things. It's just, you know, it's introduction to robots one-on-one. And that was fascinating to work on something like that because it was like, how can we do the most with the least? Um, Especially because robots, as I mentioned on Bear, they're expensive. But that was just, that's like one industry, but we're starting to see it like, as I mentioned, bear robotics out there in in restaurants. So many different fields are now experimenting whether you've seen Savioke and hotels, delivering coffees and other things to, to hotel rooms. We'll be seeing them everywhere, no doubt, everywhere. Of course, where it makes sense. They're not just gonna be wandering around the streets or maybe they will because people are not wandering around the streets right now with this virus. So maybe the robots yeah. are going to be doing things like delivering us food. I don't know.
1: Yeah, that, that's true. Yeah, I think you were mentioning some really interesting points there. There's some interesting conversations about specialization of robots. So, you know, it's easier to potentially design specialized robots than like one robot that basically can do it all. Even the easy problems right there. They're so complex in its detail to figure out. I think we could go on talking more about roads because it's such an interesting topic and you got a quite a bit of experience in that area. I really love the chance to talk a little bit about brands and the connection between design and product design and, and brands because on the one side I think with your um, your work you, you created a lot of brands or let's say give brands of physical experience and by that sort of manifesting that brand in a completely different way when it comes to new ventures and startups etc On the other side you also work with you know bigger brands like uber and recently google maps with the google tracker and basically translating an experience that is for the people fundamentally digital <laughs> and translated this into product design and i thought it's it's interesting because i think if i look at uh, the industrial design i see i see certain quotes from the digital design in certain ways or some interesting ways in terms of Of taking the brand to the physical level. So I would love to talk a little bit about your points of view when it comes to the intersection between industrial product design and the creation and involvement of brands.
0: Yeah, I think the most important thing is to remember that brand is it's like a total sum impression that a company conveys to the public or to their users about, about itself. And it's so it's comprised of its. Product design, the corporate identity, Marcom, advertising, their service proposition, all of these things combined. It's that some impression that, that is the brand. And that I, th- I think people in the past will always say, well, brand is like your logo and maybe your advertising and the messages that you send. But I, I've always felt that, well, product design is, absol- is absolutely often and even often the brand. I think the brand perception and product design should be so integrated that you can't really separate them. And sometimes, even like owning a cool brand is more important than owning a good product. You see this a lot, like in the luxury goods industry. You know, when I see some of the products that you know, like I don't don't want to pick on anybody. Say, say Louis Vuitton. You know, if I look at their purses, and you know, they're asking fifteen thousand dollars for them. The product itself is probably, you know, even the finest example of these might be $500 worth of labor and material. They are exquisitely made, yes, but you're buying that brand. It's That is what you're buying. I often think that a brand vision has to come from the designer understanding what that end user's experience is and then building it building your inspiration around that moment that you experience something. I think Porsche is a good example of that. They started with with a driving experience, a driving superiority. They're like, okay, we're the best handling, the best performance, and we're gonna build a brand around that. That's a good example of what I mean by that, rather than building it around a story that an ad agency presented to this company. I think some companies get a little bit lost in what their brand message is or they they might sometimes they, the management team might say well we re- we're this and then they describe something that they're typically not and they convince themselves that 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 is their message but people are not fooled the user always knows and they will they will acknowledge something when it's good that's the reason why Apple became so successful the general Experience that they offer, whether it's in the form of communication, computing, processing, whatever, in the form of these computers and iPhones, and all the things that they produce, including their service, is just excellent. And their brand was it was an outgrowth of that experience. It's kind of the opposite of Coca-Cola. You know, Coke. Yeah, it, to some people, it tastes good, but really, it's about the whole. They're, they're presenting a a lifestyle and a choice about about what you consume almost more than the flavor itself. I think a, an effective brand, it, it should ideally immediately express a company's commitment to to the offering of a, of a good experience. And if that experience is positive or negative, it, it will directly affect that brand. So I think I. Again, I think the product and the brand they're inextricably linked. It's it's sometimes impossible to pull them apart. Look at Nike. You that that brand and that product they are one and the same. Part of that is the the reason for that is that product design is it's loaded with messages. You know, and messages the medium of that message would be form and features, uh, color, materials, and they're all. All of these design elements are working together to communicate a product's declaration, if you will, like a declaration of purpose, a declaration of quality, declaration of the brand, and a declaration of value. It's doing all of this together. So when you're composing a design, you you need to realize that you you have this freedom to mix your ingredients in a way that you can you can say exactly what you want. Each one of these moments of declaration, if you will, that is comprised of these things like that we call design, form, features, details, etc. They are all there, available to you as a designer. It, you are only limited by your own creativity, and when you make the right Combination and after all that's what design is we are making configurations or combinations of things that that are an, a new proposition on how you want something to be solved when once you realize you have that freedom as a creative individual you you can you can make magic and you and you can move a brand to a new place you can reshape a brand you can evolve a brand you can extrapolate on a brand. You, you can really um save a brand sometimes. You know, I remember saving this company literally called Eton. They were not doing that well. And we reshaped what they were because we went back to the, the source of what Eton was doing. And that was they made emergency products. And by us going back to like, okay, what are you feeling during an emergency? And and often it was often the case that fear, anxiety, not knowing what to do became really to the forefront. And then we, re- we realized, okay, let's, let's work with that. Let's, let's create design that has associative qualities to it that can mitigate some of these, this fear. So in other words, there are certain forms and details that you can create where it, it looks more secure, more rugged, more, more protective. And so we created a a whole product line built on this, and it suddenly gave new life to the brand. They started selling hundreds of thousands more products, all because it came back to understanding what was that brand about and how can we reshape it and represent it in a way that that people can now make the final connection between what that brand promises me as an end user and what that product actually delivers to me. That was a That was a huge moment in that company's history. It it changed everything for them.
1: Basically refocusing, right? I think a lot of companies struggle, or have been struggling, I think, with exactly this, because the the opportunities just come up, right? To go into different directions and so on. And uh, the meaning of the brand just becomes muddy.
0: But it's also, I I think designers are really good at being therapists. I know it sounds funny, but there have been so many cases where We meet a new client, and they're really hell bent to create, you know, like whole new markets. And we want to double our revenue. We want to create more shareholder value, et cetera. And they think that by just creating a a product that they can ship that has like new technology or maybe some new feature that they'll be able to achieve that. But as designers, you have this opportunity to go in and say, "Wait a minute, what you know? What do you really?" what do you really represent and how how can we actualize on a brand promise by getting back to the core the core values of what this what your product is actually offering so yeah it's a kind of focus but you sometimes have to walk them through that because if you're if you're talking them through it and you're persuading and you're you're, you're but while also listening you sometimes get the most extraordinary things out of your your client. Sometimes, the, the, you know, like the CEO might say, I've never really thought about our company like that. You mean the user feels this way about us? And then as a designer, using your creative skills, you have to come, come back with, yes, and we propose that they view your product like this, or let's build on this particular benefit that you have. It might be, it might be either nascent, like, Young, it hasn't been exploited yet, or it might be some old classical value that this company has deep embedded within their brand, and all you're doing as a designer is you're revealing it again, and you're expressing it much stronger. You're bringing it out of its shell, and you're 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 presenting it. So sometimes by just being that therapist, you can find that your client. Has these realizations about what they need to do as a brand, and it becomes like an extraordinary self-realization that your client has about what to do with their company. And when when they they have that that light bulb go off like that, and they see the light, it's just that's a total rush for a designer. I can tell you, especially as a consultant, where they're like all of a sudden their your client views themselves in a different way, and now. Their brand truly finds purpose, and that's what you well, that's what you're after when you can have your client be, become their own evangelist because they've realized how strong they are and how that they can actually bring something out in the world that is much more meaningful. But they come to realization, and you as a designer help make that happen.
1: What you touched on, I think is very interesting. It really shows, I think, how it's also important for designers to, to join that, that discourse and be involved. You collaborate with a, a lot of young companies and, and, and startups. And you know sometimes design is involved from day one, sometimes it isn't. Sometimes you guys are the first design stakeholders that get that involvement with a company. If there's no design stakeholder there already. I was wondering a little bit about your point of view about why it's important that design is being part of the conversation early on. And uh, I think the topic of design driving vision, or uh, design driving confidence and visions is something that comes up over and over in, in the podcast. And I would really love to hear your point of view on that.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of things that drive vision. Sometimes it is your client that has some extraordinary new invention. It might be technology. It might be some new mechanism. And your job as a designer is to is to express that that innovation, you know, like give it its full opportunity, expose it in a manner where, again, design just just is a a medium for this innovation to happen. Sometimes you have a client that might have interesting technology, um, not earth shattering, but it it but they want to build a a vision around maybe an identity or a lifestyle choice that the consumer might have you know for example we've been working on backpacks recently that'll be coming out and we built a vision based on the fact that your needs are changing every day so why should you have one backpack that fits all of your needs when sometimes if you're just running off to the office and you have one notebook but you're carrying around this giant bag that weighs more than your notebook does that make a lot of sense? But then there are other times where that that all in one daily backpack is not big enough at all because you might want to go to the gym later that day. So we create a modular system that is real easy to just kind of like add modules onto a core piece. And the design became the vision. Or you know another good example is of where, whereby the design is the vision. It's the actual vision is this work that we've done for Tp Link. TP-Link makes networking devices, routers, switches, cameras, and the like. Really great, well-made products. But people are buying design almost like dessert in places like China. I mean, it's just like they're buying the the look and feel of these products. They're not even really reading the specs on these devices. They just assume that it's going to work right. But they somehow relate personally to these devices. And we've designed more than 80 products for this company, TP Link, and every single one of them is different. We've created design vision one at a time. We, we, we rebuffed this whole idea of design language, where one design language fits everything. And we did that for like the Dell Precision line. It worked perfectly, as it does for companies like BMW and Apple, et cetera. But not in the case of TP Link. And our design vision was to offer something unique every single time. And it took them from number 10 to number one in the world. They're now the biggest networking company in the world. Sometimes a functional advantage is the vision. And case of like TopCon, we did these survey the survey equipment. And the way that it works is just it's so extraordinary. We just needed to make sure that every bit of the design supported the strength of what they're offering was. And then I especially like when a use case is the vision where where somebody, either us or our client, somewhere in the chain, somebody has realized that there is a way to innovate and make something meaningful and positive for the world by, by doing something different in a new way and allowing people to engage with this product or this brand in some brand new way. So you're inventing use cases. We've done a lot of that kind of work for Samsung. In regard to this, people are not typically buying technology they're buying something else there and this would be the case with almost everything there there are however there are a few individuals that might look at the specs of the computer that i'm looking at right now and and make a decision based on that they're also making these decisions based on this like the emotional qualities like you know like the surface texture and the way that the hinge feels and the most inconsequential things that you would think. But because we're humans, this is the way that we we respond to our world. And that's that's what engages us, really.
1: Yeah. I think it's interesting talking in the recent episodes to a lot of really forward-thinking design practitioners in the industrial design field, some of them at the IDC International Design Conference from IDSA and I think it's, it's interesting to hear a different point of view about where industrial design is going. I think you were mentioning already in, in all the answers you gave, I think a lot of aspects around that. But if you would you know, summarize it, where do you see industrial design going? What are some of the challenges moving forward and uh, some of the things we should keep on the radar?
0: Yeah, I think it's a very important topic and designers need to be thinking about this more in the future. I am super optimistic. About industrial design, I guess because at the very root, design to me is is all about making positive change. And change by nature is all about the future. It's not about the past, but it's about the future. And as a designer, if you're really living a full life as a designer, you you are living in the future because what you're creating sometimes in your head, and then you sketch and jump in a cad, it's not going to be seen for quite some time, you know, nine months, maybe at the soonest or maybe two or three years. So you need to be a good projectionist as a designer. I think some of the really important things we need to be concerned about. And I'm most worried about are, co- are quite a few things actually, although I'm, I'm not to the dystopic state that a lot of designers are getting to in the world is because there's a lot of, negativity in our world today, whether it's uh, climate change or the weird politics that are going on. However, in regards to climate change, maybe we would. So I think we need to constantly remind ourselves that it's all about energy, energy consumption and entropy. Specifically with energy, I think designers really need to consider like, not just what they're creating, but, but the amount of energy that is required to make the thing that you are designing. You have to look at the complete ecosystem and the effects that it has. Another one is conservation. I, you know, we hear from marketing folks all the time and various clients. It's like, man, we want, we want to sell so many more of these devices. Conservation is a funny thing. You know, most people think, oh, well, I recycle, but that's not enough. Man, there's so much stuff produced. There's so much junk out there. I mean, just go to the mall, open up Sky Mall. I mean, you'll see the most ridiculous stuff. I remember George Nelson looking out of the window when I was working with him in New York City. We'd stand up in this uh, window overlooking Gramercy Park on the 18th floor, and he would look out and he'd say, "Look at all this junk." And he was cynic. He was like a cynical old guy when I was working with him, and it just really rang true to me. I don't know what it was about that, but here I was, this uh, you know listful young guy, just, you know, design was the world to me. It still is, but, you know, he really kind of brought it back to earth. It's like, oh my God, we are producing a lot of crap. So conservation is, uh, to me, it's about you're winning when you're creating a quality of experience. It's not about the quantity. Mm -hmm. I think timeless high quality and high value design is the most sustainable design in the long run. And designers need to Learn how to communicate this notion of what conservation is. Designers are great at communication design and telling stories and crafting solutions that are unique, but we haven't really applied it to conservation consumers out there. They really don't know what conservation means. It's extraordinary when you think of much much waste there
1: is. Yeah.
0: Related to that is this trend. Of I call it reductionism and it's or minimal design. You know, there's mm-hmm. this we have beautified simplicity to the point where some designers can only think this way. I and mean, I think this reductionist trend for me goes not only into design but also engineering. I'm seeing these extraordinary advances that allow us to have televisions that are three millimeters thick and lightweight systems and that that are really, truly making much less of an impact. And I think, you know, in regards to energy and conservation, this reductionist trend, we have to, as designers, make sure that it continues to be cool, Mm -hmm. this reductionist minimalism. Not that everything has to be that way, but we have to always consider, again, the amount of material and the amount of energy to produce things. I like that design has a much wider definition Today, I think design has become more um, like polymorphic. There's many different definitions and it's constantly mm-hmm. changing. I think we have to be ready for a future that is constantly changing. As a consultant, you know, you kind of embrace it. You know, the processes keep changing. Some things remain the same, but some things are constantly changing. I think the future has to consider more about what the meaning of like satisfaction and I'm talking about like good design. Ultimately, the objective is to provide more meaning or satisfaction to the end user. You know, my problem has been solved, or I enjoy this more, or I relate to something more. That's what good design is. But we need to have a very holistic satisfaction in mind moving into the future where the hardware, the software, the service, the infrastructure, the business all come together to create a bigger broader definition of what satisfaction means and that partly means that social problems should be addressed as well by designers not that we are you know programmed for that necessarily but we're good at communicating uh, through our medium and therefore social problems are it's a major problem and we should be using our skills and we're very good at making very complex things simple For us humans to to consume, I think that the future is. I get very excited when you combine design and science. We recently worked on a project for a company called Kuniku, where we are using live rat brain neurons that are programmed to smell certain pathogens or explosives, many of which are organic materials. So sensors are, are typically good at, like, you know, light indication, movement humidity, things like that, but not really smell, not molecules. That's why you see dogs walking around airports. This is a device that we've designed that uses a cartridge full of living neurons that are connected to a computer. And that's, man, that's moving the future of design way out there where biology and electronics are now suddenly coming together. It's related to even the AI that I was talking about before. That's fascinating. But simultaneously, this is why the future is so exciting to me. Is you also see the opposite going on? You see the development of craft. I mean, the, the fact that companies like Shinola or Tanner Goods—these are small like companies that are just really focused on creating like the best belt in the world, like new way of sewing shoes—and that like the return to craft is pretty extraordinary. I enjoy that i'm recently have been working on some lounge chairs. They have no electronics, no technology, no AI none of this stuff we've been talking about. no robotic movement, nothing just clean, simple, beautiful, unique design that's all about the material, the negative space, making a design statement et cetera so i'm I'm also seeing that in the future and then there's another aspect, like the whole like cultural extinction i'll call it like You know, in the beginning of my career, I could so clearly tell you if I looked at any design, I could say, yeah, that came from Italy or that came from Japan. Yep, that came from Korea. That's definitely American. And you knew German design. Mm -hmm. But now you can't really do that. You know, I was at the Consumer Electronics Show recently. You walk around, it's like, man, I have no idea where this came from because Mm -hmm. design has been democratized. There's so much information out there available to anyone. So it's a little bit sad but there there really are very few kind of cultural expressions except maybe in craft like you know you walk down the markets in kyoto clearly you are surrounded by by little crafted products that are made in japan that are only japanese unmistakable so I, you know i i have many different views about the future of design those are those are the the handful i think that are kind of important that we should all be thinking about as designers
1: agreed to all your points and what was interesting is also what you said about the aspect of reduction and how design can influence this i mean i hope this motivates designer to be part of that conversation and drive change drive positive impact so i think since you were mentioning so many different aspects around uh, driving impact what would be your advice for either teams of designers that want to increase their you know? recognition of being a force of change and impact within an organization or designers at large to be part of that conversation?
0: There are many ways to do that, but I think that it really starts with communicating the advantages of design. You can't be shy to talk about design. You can't be reticent in how you present the advantages that good design has. Just get out there, like really get yourself out there as a designer. It's really important to be able to speak business language. I have found that in my career, the sooner I learned how to, how to think like your client or big business, the sooner you're able to get your design message out there, like really understand what, it, what return on their investment is about. And even if you have to turn that into your own form of return on creativity, whatever that is, <laughs> find it. You know, like for example, I I will often talk to my clients about this notion of a prosperity paradox, you know, where client always wants to like earn more money, but a designer's aim is typically not about money, but it's about meaning. Mm. And when they when your client understands, oh my gosh, there's a there's a there's an opposing side to this. Like, you know, a company will often talk about the outcome for their corporation. Designers, you need to pull them again, like a magnet, you got to pull them in the opposite direction. You want the outcome for that end user. So when you convey your point of view, sometimes that allows you to have much more impact. You've got to make the links between the business goals and the design program or the design goals. And once your client understands, oh, the designer is actually thinking about how I can become more successful, oh my gosh, the the door is open. You can suddenly, you're given so much freedom because now you're talking their language. Then finally, use all the market evidence to prove how impactful design can be. It exists. There is so much evidence of good design making an impact to businesses. And when you combine all of these points together, it becomes so obvious that, that design is providing impact and, and it's not as hard as you think to, to get your innovation out there.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I t- totally agree. I think um, you you could frame it also as empathy, right? We think we talk always a lot about empathy for for users and for the user experience, but having empathy about other stakeholders and understanding maybe their needs, or you know, like you said, you know, bring it back and understanding the why. We need to wrap it up because of time. I mean, I would love to continue talking to you, but uh, I think I would really love to. Thank you for all your insights and uh, the inspiring perspectives you brought up. I hope this inspires the community from everywhere about the future of design, the future of industrial design, about the role of design within the larger context. So thank you so much, Dan. That was the episode. If you want to give us feedback on the podcast, have something to contribute to the next episode, or just want to get in touch, feel free to connect with us either on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram messages, or simply via the designdrives.org website. We love to hear from you.